if we weren't awake, we now are. Well, thank you, John, for that kind introduction, for your hospitality, and for getting my most important of titles right, the, the, the king of babies, which uh, if you weren't at celebration, that's a good advertisement or maybe not so good advertisement to go to the next one. <laughs> but uh, truly, so good to be here with you all. Uh, such a, a joy and a privilege for me to come from being with the church in Santa Ana this morning, uh, who send me excitedly and send their greetings and say hello, to be here with you guys this evening. Um, so respect your church, your pastoral team, Ron and, and Bill and Tim. Ron actually did my ordination exam, um, and so grateful for you guys as a church and all the ways in which you bless us uh, through your prayers for us in our church plant, which just celebrated five years this past Sunday. So praise God for that and his faithfulness. But uh, for your generosity toward us that we've experienced financially uh, from you guys here in Pasadena, for your vision to plant a church back in Orange <laughs> some 10 years ago now, and for them to then go around and plant us. This is a legacy of faithfulness, a legacy of the Spirit working through our churches together here in California. And we say, Lord, plant more churches. <laughs> Because at the very least, we'll have more pastors if <laughs> all the pastors get sick on a Sunday. We'll increase our death chart <laughs> in that way. But uh, truly, so thankful for every opportunity that we have at Cross of Grace Santa Ana, Sovereign Grace Church of Pasadena, to express our gospel partnership together. From our California celebrations to sharing pulpits and everything else uh, in between. And uh, it is unfortunate that what's brought me out <laughs> is the sickness that's affected the entire pastoral team. But in God's providence, it does remind us how good it is to be partners together. <laughs> but with that, as Ron and, and Bill and Tim are, are home and they're uncomfortable uh, and they're in some distress, they thought they might as well have me come and put you in the same state by preaching a message on evangelism. So here I am <laughs> to preach about evangelism and to encourage you and to, Lord willing, spur you on in your mission here in downtown Pasadena where the Lord has placed you to be part of his saving work in the world, in and through what you're doing here in the city, in this neighborhood. And so, so glad to be here. As uh, John mentioned, I have been given the privilege of being uh, appointed, I guess, <laughs> by our regional leader, Eric, to be the uh, regional evangelist for the Western region of churches in Sovereign Grace. And so extra locally, I have the pleasure of coming alongside churches to encourage and to inspire and to spur them on in their evangelistic efforts, to take the principle that the gospel is the power of God for salvation and to help churches turn that into something practical. <laughs> we agree. I don't think anyone disagrees. The gospel is the power of God to salvation, but what are we doing with it? How are we intentionally and strategically um, putting ourselves in a position to share and to communicate that gospel, to bring unbelievers into the witness of the church on a Sunday morning or afternoon? or in our small groups, in our neighborhoods, through our hospitality at home? How are we acting on that principle in a practical sort of way? So I have the, the, the privilege, the pleasure of being able to serve churches in our region in that capacity. And then today I want to come in, and, and you, in this case with you guys, I want to serve you all in that way as well, to talk about mission, to talk about evangelism. And really even tonight, um, before talking about even all the practicals, all the, the equipping work and the strategy and the kind of intentional efforts that could come into play with evangelism, I think first and foremost it's important that our, our hearts would be freshly inflamed, freshly energized, freshly encouraged to do the work of evangelism, freshly uh, stoked with the flame within them to have a zeal, right, and a desire for Christ to be glorified in our city, in our neighborhood, and also a fresh affection for the lost who are around us. And so today, that's my burden, that's my goal, that you guys would see the task of evangelism that the Lord has given to you, and that your hearts would be inflamed for it, <laughs> not uh, maybe wanting to run away from it. So that's what we're going to do this afternoon. And so if you would, please turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 15. We'll be reading verses 1 through 10 this afternoon with the expectation that the Lord would use these words that he's given to us to inflame and energize and refresh and refuel our hearts for mission. And so turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10, a passage is going to be found under the translator heading of the parable of the lost sheep. The parable of the lost sheep. And as we say in Santa Ana, si habla español, abran sus Biblias a Lucas capítulo 15, versículos 1 a 10, 
parábola de la oveja perdida. And I'll be reading from the ESV version this afternoon. If you don't have a Bible with you, just go on your phone's uh, browser, pull up your Bible app of choice, and look up Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. We'll read God's word together, and I'll do the rest. And so, without any further ado, let's turn our attention to the words of God to us this afternoon. Beginning in verse 1, Luke writes, Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or, what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. These are God's words to us, and we need the help of God's spirit to understand and to apply them. So would you join me in a word of prayer? Oh Lord, how good it is to be here with your people this evening. How good it is to be with Sovereign Grace Church of Pasadena, and how good it is... (laughs) that we get to be yours. And in belonging to you, Lord, serve you on mission. And I pray that this evening, the word that is before us in Luke chapter 15, that you would, by the power of your spirit, that you would work through it to bring uh, conviction, to challenge us, to encourage us, and to hold out for us the prospect of joy as we pursue the mission that you've given to us. As these believers here pursue pursue the mission that you've given to them here in their city, in their community, and in their neighborhoods. So Spirit, I ask that you would come, help me to preach with clarity, help us all to hear with faith, and glorify Jesus Christ as we look at this word that's before us. We ask and we pray all these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, from the Sovereign Grace Church's Statement of Faith, section 12, paragraph 2, on the local church. As an expression of Christ's universal church, the local church is the focal point of God's plan to mature his people and save sinners. The local church is the center of God's saving work in the world. Your local church here in Pasadena is the center of God's saving work in your city. He intends to use you all to be the means by which he will save those in Pasadena. So as Christians, as those who belong to Christ's church, we are those who have been given a mission. To be saved by Jesus, in other words, is to be sent out by him as well. It's a non-negotiable reality if you are to be his. In John chapter 20, verse 21, the risen Christ, he says to his disciples and by extension to us, that as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. God, we see, is a God on mission. He sent his son into the world to seek and save the lost, and he sent us, his people, to follow after him in reaching men and women with the gospel. Those whom God has gathered to himself were called then to be instruments, the instruments by which he'll gather others into his fold as well. And he's called us in this to make disciples. This is what we know as the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. And disciples are made as the gospel message goes forth, and reaches those who don't yet believe it, who haven't yet received it. And this is what we call, very simply, evangelism. Evangelism, our communicating with words, the gospel message to those who have not yet received it or not yet believed it. Those whom our passage today that we just read would refer to as lost. Lost, those who haven't yet received the gospel. Lost is another way of saying those who are separated from God and 
most importantly, unable to rescue themselves or to return to him on their own. In the scriptures, the lost are those who must be found. They can't find themselves. They must be found. And so evangelism is the announcing to the lost the good news that there is one who has come to seek them and to save them from the predicament of their lostness. That Jesus Christ is a willing liberator and savior of sinners who has come on a rescue mission. Evangelism is the good news that through the life, death, and resurrection of this King Jesus, there is a way by which the lost might come to enter into his kingdom and experience all the goodness of his reign. To experience the joy of belonging to him. To experience freedom from judgment and sin and the wrath of God the King whom they had rebelled against. This is the gospel we have to announce. This is the good news that God has given to you all to take to your neighbors here in Pasadena. Jesus, we see in the text before us, he came to seek and save the lost, and he calls us to do the same. This is our mission, a mission that's advanced as the gospel is celebrated, as a gathered body worships Christ, and also as individuals go out and share it with their neighbors. Evangelism is a calling Christ has given to each of us. It's a spiritual discipline that we're all meant to walk in for the glory of Christ, for the good of our neighbors, and I don't want you to miss this, for the joy, I said joy, <laughs> of our souls. Now, I realize that as I say the word evangelism, <laughs> as it rolls off my tongue and out my mouth, it, it can provoke many responses in us. And I don't want to assume anything of anyone, but I can probably imagine, it's fair to say, there's a wide level of heart responses, emotional reflexes that come out when we talk about or consider evangelism. For some, it could be excitement and zeal. Get me out there. Who can I talk to today? <laughs> For others, it might be fear and discomfort. As you consider a world around you that seems to be increasingly hostile and negative toward what we believe and what we hold dear, toward a state that we live in and a culture around us that rejects the offer of life in Christ and passes propositions that codify death in our land. You may be fearful of how your neighbors perceive you or how they would respond to you even striking up a bit of spiritual conversation. You may even be not fearful, but instead as you look at a world around us that seems so antagonistic toward Christ and toward life in him, you may become truthfully, honestly angry in your heart. You may be defensive. You may be prone to withdrawn from those who believe differently than you. As you consider going out to engage individuals who are, in fact, diametrically opposed to what you hold most dear. Yet still, uh, for others of us, the word evangelism, it might just mean discouragement. Discouragement regarding your ability to be effective in this way. Or guilt and shame might set in as you consider how you've failed to obey Jesus in sharing the gospel, how you've failed to see fruit, how you've failed to have zeal in your heart for his glory, how you're fearful of talking to someone you don't know. One way or another, church, we can find ourselves prone in this area of the Christian life to make excuses. We can find ourselves prone to wallowing in guilt or otherwise avoiding stepping into evangelism for some reason or another we can consider the task of evangelism. And <laughs> I don't know about you, but even as the original evangelist, even for me, <laughs> it can be daunting. And what's at stake here and what Christ is calling us to do is no joke. It's a big deal. So today, I'm not speaking to you as some expert <laughs> on evangelism, but I'm speaking to you as a fellow struggler, desperately in need of God's grace to walk in the mission that he's given to us. And so we're all fellow strugglers. <laughs> in this way. But the good news is that God has grace enough to meet us in this area of the Christian life. But the question for us this afternoon is, but how will he do it? How will he begin to meet us in the struggle? What do we need? What's going to help us move beyond that struggle and out into that discomfort that evangelism brings? And so this afternoon, I submit to you this, that what we all need to joyfully step into evangelism is to be, here. this, freshly confronted confronted with and compelled by the work of Jesus, the evangelist. 
That's right. We need to see Jesus, the evangelist par excellence, the one who does it better than anyone else. We need to see him, the son of God who came to earth on a mission to save sinners. We need to see him, our chief shepherd, who made it his aim to seek out and to find his lost sheep. And evidenced by the fact that we are here today, he's been successful, has he not, in finding that which was lost. He came to earth on a rescue mission. He welcomed sinners who drew near to him and died on the cross to secure redemption for all who would draw near to him by faith. And so what we need to see is the heart of Christ for the lost, and we need to see the lost as he saw them. And not only this, we need to even look beyond that and see what he saw as he pursued them. We need to take on the the sight of Christ. We need to get into the heart of Christ as we consider evangelism. If we want to have any hope of getting our hearts inflamed and our affections stoked and our energies refreshed in this way. And so Luke 15, it offers us three things that Christ saw as he pursued the lost. These three things are going to serve as the uh, sermon outline for the rest of our time together today. The three things he saw were, one, the danger they were in. Two, the value they possessed. And three, the joy that came when they were found. All of them are important, but the greatest of these is joy. He pursued the lost for the joy that was set before him. And this is my burden for you today, that you would leave this place more inclined, more eager, more trusting that God would bring joy as you step into mission and evangelism, that you would pursue the lost for the joy that's set before you. And so as we engage in mission, joy, it's to be our primary motivator. In Luke 15, it teaches us that we ought to spread the joy of Jesus for the joy of Jesus. Spread the joy of Jesus for the joy of Jesus. That is, Spread the joy we have in belonging to Jesus and being his people in order to receive the joy that belonged to Jesus himself in his rescue of the lost. The joy that was set before him as he came to earth to seek and save the lost, as he pursued them with patient compassion and laid his life down in order to rescue them. This is the same joy that's held out to us as we get to have the privilege of participating with God in his great rescue mission. This is the joy that's held out for us in Luke chapter 15. Joy is what Jesus saw as he pursued the lost, and it's why we should pursue them as well. And though, even in this, I mentioned two other things, right? Danger and value that are also seen by Jesus as he looks at the lost. I'd really argue that really danger and value, all those things do is increase joy. Even when you think about it, (laughs) there's a proportional relationship, right? Between the amount of danger that something's in and the value that it has. Uh, that corresponds to the amount of celebration, right, that we receive that happens when it's found, when it's saved, when it's recovered, right? You know, if I had a broken arm and I went to the doctor's office and they put a cast on it and fixed me up, that would be pretty cool. (laughs) You might, you know, say, that's awesome, Jeff. You might sign my cast, but that would kind of be the end of that. (laughs) But if something happened and I was rushed to the hospital and I was on a flat line and had to be resuscitated (laughs) and the doctor brought me back, we might have a party after that. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? If you adopt a kitten, that's great. That's cool. (laughs) But if you adopt a human child, an image bearer of God, and bring them out of a situation of brokenness and dysfunction and a life of no hope looking forward and bring them into an entirely new situation of love in a household, of joy, of a future to be had, oh man, that's something we'd celebrate, wouldn't it be? It seems that the greater the danger and the greater the value of what is lost, the greater the celebration that comes when it's found. The greater the celebration that comes when that rescue is complete. And church, in God's rescue of sinners, oh man, there's no greater danger, but there's also no greater value and nothing greater at stake than what's going on in the gospel rescue. And we get to celebrate what's happening in all that along with God every time his word goes forth, every time one sinner repents. He's inviting us to share in this with him. And so this brings us to our first point. The things we need to see to help us see our mission rightly. To engage in mission like Jesus and for the joy of Jesus, we need to see, number one, the danger of the lost. And this is verses one through four in the text. Verses one through four 
in the text, in a brief kind of summary as to what's going on here in Luke 15, in this chapter as a whole, Jesus gives three very well-known parables. He gives the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And the context, as we read, of Luke 15 that frames the giving of these parables is that the lost are drawing near to Jesus to receive the message that he is announcing. He's surrounded by tax collectors and sinners who are receiving his welcome and finding joy in his presence. And this already by itself is amazing, isn't it? (laughs) We should stop and marvel at this, shouldn't we? That the unholy, unrighteous, and ungodly are being brought near to the holy and righteous Son of God himself. That this is happening. (laughs) Jesus has come to earth in order to receive those who were once living as God's enemies as God's friends. These outcasts are now becoming part of the people of God through their faith in Jesus. They have received him, and in turn, he's received them into his kingdom. But verse uh, 2 tells us that this fellowship between Jesus and sinners, it makes the Pharisees and the scribes uncomfortable. Luke writes, they grumbled. They expressed and voiced their displeasure, both publicly and privately toward this, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. They are not pleased. They are dissatisfied by what they're witnessing in Christ welcoming these people. And you see, the Pharisees, they were the strictest observers of the law of Moses in the days of Jesus. They were all about holiness. And even their name Pharisee means to be set apart. Um, The scribes, in turn, were the experts of the Old Testament, uh, you know, law of Moses. They are the PhDs of the day who know all about what God's law has said, what it requires, and who is a lawbreaker and who is not (laughs) by the standard entailed in it. These two groups, they represent, in other words, the most holy and learned segment of the Jewish population in Jesus' day. They are the religious elites who did not like to mix in with the kind of people that Jesus spent his time with. These holy ones, they can't understand how Jesus, being a rabbi, and maybe even as they're kind of thinking about it in real time, maybe even the Messiah, they're waiting and seeing what's going to happen with him, right, in his earthly ministry, they can't understand how Jesus could welcome these sort of people into his company. These were the kind of people who ought to be avoided. And so this is their perception. This, what he's doing, this is improper of Jesus. No holy person would welcome sinners. No man of God would live in fellowship with these enemies of God. And this arrangement, it makes them uncomfortable. It offends their sensibilities. And what it does, really, what we should key key in on is it reveals their heart, doesn't it, toward the lost. It reveals their heart toward those who are outside of the kingdom. They see Jesus receiving out-and-out sinners like he is. And they don't like it one bit. And so we need to ask ourselves, and not just paint them with a you know, broad brush in a bad light. Ask ourselves, do you grumble when you consider mission? Both in public or probably more likely in private. Are you reluctant to engage those who are so clearly lost as you might perceive it around you? so very different from you and how you live your life and how you value things and how you vote and how you spend your money and how you like to pursue entertainment. The list goes on. (laughs) Begin to assess your hearts as we're thinking about this and let's allow the Pharisees in their heart to help us do an assessment and a check on our own hearts. Assess your heart. When you consider mission, this reflexively, (laughs) do you respond with grumbling or with gladness that you can participate in what Jesus is doing? Because you see, it's in response to this grumbling perspective of what Jesus was doing in welcoming these lost people that Jesus comes to tell these parables. That's the scene, that's the context. And these parables, they're short stories taken from everyday life that are designed to teach a spiritual truth. Even more than that, they're stories that function in the gospel to take a, you know, a scene from everyday life and to expand upon that by highlighting something of the nature of uh, the kingdom that Jesus was bringing. And not only just to highlight the nature of what it is, but also to demand, to compel, to call for some kind of response to the reality of the kingdom that's coming in, in Jesus. And so in this case, Jesus, he tells these parables about recovering what is lost to shine a light on what he was doing in receiving sinners, which also simultaneously that light (laughs) revealed what was wrong, what was lacking in the perception of his opponents. He shines a light on our own hearts toward mission, our own hearts toward the lost in this way. And so these parables to 
uh, these parables of lost things, rather, they're addressed to those who, who themselves think that they've never been lost, right? These scribes and these Pharisees. And not only that, Jesus is trying to challenge their perspective on the lost. And so in these parables, Jesus is talking about the lost, but he's actually addressing those who don't consider themselves to be lost. Those who are, in other words, comfortable in their place in God's community, comfortable with how the community is, and aren't really open toward or inclined to having others join in on it. And so in other words, Jesus, he tells these parables to teach us how to think about his mission and our own and how we should view those who don't yet know him. And in this first parable that he tells, the parable of of the lost sheep, he aims to stir up our hearts for the lost by showing us the grave danger that they're in. And so he tells a story of a lost sheep that the shepherd left the 99 and went out to find. And God's people in scripture, they're often portrayed as sheep, as being his flock that he has gathered, the fold that he leads and guides and protects and, and nourishes. And the reference to sheep in this passage, it connects us back to Psalm 23 to Ezekiel 34, right? The, the former expressing the pastoral care of God for his people. And in connection to the latter, Ezekiel 34, Jesus speaks to the leaders of Israel here in this scene, just as God addressed the bad shepherds in the land, right, throughout, through the prophet Ezekiel. And God, he himself in Ezekiel 34, he promised to be the shepherd who would gather all his scattered sheep, and he's doing so. In and through Jesus Christ, God is doing just that. He's coming to be the good shepherd who would regather the lost sheep. And in chapter, or verse 4, Jesus begins to tell the story of the shepherd who had a hundred sheep and had lost just one of them, and he left the 99 to rescue the one that was lost. And he challenges the Pharisees in this way, who themselves are the, the comfortable 99, who have never been lost like that other sheep. He challenges them to consider their perspective on the one who is lost. And in so doing, he's critiquing their apathy. He's also critiquing their shepherding ability as leaders. They're not going, they're not going out for the lost ones. They're staying with the herd who are safe. And for us, most importantly in this first point, he's demonstrating the grave danger of the one who is lost. Commentator Lawrence Porter describes the plight of this lost sheep. Listen to this. He says, summarizing the scene, a sheep has gone astray. Normally the whole flock follows the wanderer, but here our creature has managed to detach himself from the main company. He wanders off through the wilderness. He nibbles on the grass that he finds. When he realizes he is alone, he cannot, with his limited faculties, find his way back to the rest. If no one finds him, he will stay where he is or wander yet farther away and starve. In other words, a lost sheep is a dead sheep. This sheep will be easy prey to wolves or he'll simply starve out on his own. Someone else must seek him and find him. His death is certain if he remains separated from the flock. This lost sheep is in grave danger. So the question for us, how much more is the lost person facing the eternal danger of separation from God? If he or she remains separate from God, then death is also certain for them. But a death that is experienced by them eternally a state of existence in which the wrath of God towards sin is poured out in full upon all those who have never cast themselves upon Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And as we consider this danger that those who are lost are in, it ought to move us. We ought to move toward this danger even as we do in our daily lives, right? We run toward the danger we see instinctively, don't we? When our children cry for help, we're there. <laughs> when we witness a car accident on the road, we're pulling over, we're getting out, we're saying, how can I help? Not knowing the person or what's going on, we're running toward it. Or I, I consider a time when my own sister on a family vacation, she fell between, at night, a dock and a boat that she was stepping onto. She was right in front of me, and then all of a sudden, I see nothing, but I hear a thud. And she's in the water. She's hit her head on the back of the dock, and instinctively, without really understanding what was going on, without a moment's notice, my uncle and I have our arms into the water. We're reaching, we're trying to find her, to see if we can grab her hand. As she's down on the bottom, in the dark, at night, 
with her arms up in the air, trying whatever she could to grab onto anything. If we hadn't have reached our arm in, she never would have gotten out. But instinctively, there we are. We moved toward the danger she was in because it was right there, right? It was right in front of our faces and so apparent that her, her need was desperate. The danger is real for the lost. But the problem is, is that when we see those who have not yet believed in Christ, we can't see the danger as apparently, right? Like we could see the danger my sister was in. We can't see the danger as apparently. Yet the danger is real, and we should not be apathetic toward their condition. Listen, as one commentator says, if we can only have a five-minute glimpse into hell, our evangelism would be changed for a lifetime. If we could really see and perceive even a glimpse of the danger, the urgency of our evangelism would be changed for a lifetime as we considered the reality of utter and complete estrangement from God, bearing the full weight of his wrath toward each and every one of your sins, being cut off from all joy, all love, all hope, living in the agony of realizing that every second you missed the entire point of life and failing to draw near to God through Jesus Christ. And now for eternity, you'll continue to fall short of glorifying the one you were made to glorify and enjoy forever. Being surrounded and overcome with, with pain, with torment, with suffering, both internal and external, physical and spiritual, being filled with regret. And the point is not to, to scare us straight or to overwhelm us with emotion for emotion's sake, but it's to really try to wrap our heads around the fact that there is a danger that awaits those who do not yet know God, who have not yet sought Christ and cast themselves upon him for their forgiveness, for their peace and reconciliation with God. The wrath of God remains upon them, and there is an urgent need that they hear the life-saving, judgment-evading message of the gospel. And so Jesus, the good shepherd, seeing the danger that the sheep is in, he won't abandon the sheep or leave it to fend for himself, but he will pursue it. And for us, seeing the danger that the lost are in, would we as well be moved to pursue them and to present to them the only way out of their lostness, the good news of the rescue available in and through Jesus. Jesus, he went out of his way to seek and save the lost. He did this, one, because he had a proper awareness of their danger, of their predicament, but also because he had a proper appraisal of their worth. And this brings us to point number two. Just like Jesus, we also, as we look to the lost, we need to see the value. And this is verses four through five and as well as verse eight. As we look at the text before us, Jesus tells us about the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go pursue the one. He tells us about the woman who, when she, having 10 silver coins and losing one of them, she goes to great lengths and to great trouble to find the one coin that she had lost. And the parable of the lost sheep, uh, it implies something to us about the value of what's lost, that the parable of the lost coin uh, more directly indicates that what is lost has a lot of value <laughs> to the one who's lost it. The shepherd doesn't say, well, you know, I have 99 other sheep, you know. <laughs> sheep get lost, I still have a lot. <laughs> what does he do? He goes to pursue that one sheep. Similarly, the woman, she has 10 coins. She doesn't go, well, 90% is not bad. No, she goes into diligently seek for that coin, right? She turns on a lamp because back in the day, they don't have electricity. The lights in ancient, you know, Palestine, uh, the, the, in the houses, they're, they're dark, they're dim. She's got to get on the ground, hands and knees and look for this one coin. And that coin in, in the Greek, it represented not just a small piece of change, but these 10 coins represent the totality of her life's savings to her. And so even with the language that Jesus is using in this parable, he's saying it's significant that she's lost this amount of money. She is going to go to the lengths of being uncomfortable, of getting on her hands and knees, getting on the floor, seeking diligently until this thing is found. Christ is indicating to us that as the shepherd is willing to go pursue the sheep, as the woman is willing to go look for this coin, that what is lost is valuable. And the upshot for us is, if sheep and coins, how much more image bearers of God, how much more valuable are they to him? These parables do. They teach us that the lost are worth searching for. That though God has made billions of men and women in his image, none of them are inconsequential to him. They all possess a unique and intrinsic 
dignity, and value being made in his image. They all matter. Hear this. No person you'll ever meet is not a big deal to God. It's just a a throwaway sheep, a coin you can forget about. No person you meet is not a big deal to God. And though all people are fallen through sin and are desperately lost apart from Christ, all people are, as John Calvin puts it, like ruined statues. Think about this image, ruined statues on which we can still trace the outlines of their former glory. Or as Francis Schaeffer phrased it, everyone that you'll meet, they're like a pile of glorious ruins. Wonderfully created to know and to reflect their creator, yet deeply broken and deeply flawed and deeply unable to realize that design, to restore the image of God in themselves that's been marred and defaced by sin. Every lost person you meet is a pile of glorious ruins. A ruined statue on which you can still trace the outlines of their former glory, who's been made to know God, who can't deny the fact that God is, though they might try to suppress the knowledge of God through unrighteousness in their hearts, but they know God is. They've been created to know him and to love him and to worship him. And through the gospel, they can. There's not one of them who is beyond the point of no return, who is not worth the conversation, who is not worth the discomfort, who is not worth the effort to seek that God might save them. And this is what the parable of the coin indicates to us, that the lost have value. It's worth giving our lives that they might find life. God, we see, through the parable of the shepherd, who represents Christ, God, he goes out of his way to find the lost, to seek the lost, and he patiently bears with them to bring them home to safety. And in this, we see God's heart which is meant to to soften, to challenge, to encourage our own heart. Because God's heart toward the lost is one of compassion, right? It's compassion. We see this coming through the way that the shepherd and the woman pursue the lost and the way they respond once they're found. Consider this, that as the shepherd, right, as he encounters his helpless sheep who's taken him on this long and arduous journey, how does he respond when he finds it? Does he hit it on the head with his, you know, shepherd's crook and say, come on, you dang sheep? <laughs> does he respond with frustration? Does he go, ah, was it even worth it? What does he do? What does the text say? It says that when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders. He will bear it home. He will carry it gently and confidently to safety. And as he does so, what is he doing? Is he grumbling? Is he complaining? Is he frustrated? No, he's rejoicing. Listen to what R.C. Sproul says about this. He says that Jesus goes and he finds us helpless sheep and he carries us when we cannot go ourselves. There is a tenderness involved in the way the shepherd brings that lost sheep back. He doesn't go with a chain or collar and put it around the sheep's neck and drag it kicking back home. He puts the sheep around his neck and he carries it home. So unlike our tendency, perhaps, to respond with frustration when we say maybe our kids have taken off in a public place and we can't locate them for the life of us when we find them. Jesus, he doesn't get angry at the lost for being lost. Instead, as Sproul continues, the thing about lost sheep that Jesus understands and that he helps us to see here is that they don't know that they're lost. Consider this. The worst part of being lost is to be lost and to not know that you're lost. And this should evoke in our hearts, though there might be plenty of things we disagree with in lifestyle choice, in belief, in the way that life is lived. At heart, the lost don't know they're lost. They don't know the danger they're in. They don't know what's ahead. And that should evoke in our hearts not a sense of apathy, defensiveness, or withdrawal, but a sense of compassion, like Christ represents here for us. That Jesus, he bears the sheep, and he carries it along with compassion and love, not condemnation and frustration toward it. He isn't angered at the lostness of the lost. He's compassionate. His heart goes out toward them, not withdrawing from them. And so as we consider these things, the upshot is that we ought to have the same kind of tender hearts toward the lost. 
that in contrast to the scribes and the Pharisees, we should be eager, not reluctant, to see newly redeemed sinners added to our churches. We should be feeling compassionate to those who are not yet here in the, in the room with us. We should long for them to be here with us, even if it means discomfort, <laughs> immaturity of new believers, the shake-up to our social groups and existing norms here. We should embrace all of that for the sake of the lost being found. We should pursue non-Christians, that they would become added to our communities, just like Jesus did. And so a question to ask yourself as you consider mission, and as you consider how this is fleshed out in your life and in the life of the church, are you content with your community? Are you content with your community the way it is now? And that doesn't mean, are you, uh, you know, to say if you're not content that you don't love it, you don't see God's grace at work, you're not seeing his faithfulness, you know, on display, but it means, are you content that it should stay the same? That no new believers should be added? That no new loss should be found? Are you content with the way things are and kind of apathetic toward mission? Do you refrain from reaching out to certain people because in your heart, you don't actually want them to become a part of your community. You don't want them to be in your small group. You don't want to see them too much. You already see them enough at work or in other parts of your social lives. Do you prefer the church to just stay as it is with this group of redeemed sinners here, but not with any more? Because it's more comfortable. It's just right and not subject to the changes and the strains and the newness that comes with growth and inclusion. Are you content with your community? Is there something in your heart that is wanting to lean toward that side of, I'd rather it be like the way it is than to embrace the call of Jesus to enter into the discomfort and find the better joy of letting this community get shaken up for the glory of God. You see, Jesus, he would teach us that whatever challenges we experience in engaging the lost, they're far outweighed by the joy that awaits us when we get to be part of the lost being found. And this brings us to our final and most important point. Point number three, that as we look at the lost and as we consider our mission, we need to see the joy. We need to see the joy. And as I said at the outset, we don't often, to make an assumption, <laughs> we don't often see the joy in evangelism, just the difficulty. And as a fellow, fellow Sovereign Grace pastor, Jim Donahue, uh, once said, he said this, we often miss the joy in evangelism. It seems hard and messy and awkward. We fear rejection we doubt it will even work, but though evangelism can be scary, there's immense joy on the other side. Indeed, nothing in this world brings more gladness than seeing someone, listen to this, forgiven of their sins and rescued from the wrath of God. Nothing ought to bring us more joy. We rejoice when a new baby is born. Ought we not to rejoice when one man or woman is reborn? into the family of God. We rejoice when the lost are found, when we find <laughs> the missing sunglasses we've misplaced. We rejoice when <laughs> so many other things come to pass, but ought we not to rejoice when God miraculously brings new creation life and saves those who are lost and allows them to be found so that they can come in and join the chorus of us, right? Praising the glory of Christ as we gather. <laughs> the more the merrier when it comes to that, right? Would we believe and experience this ourselves, that there's nothing more joyful than to participate in what God is doing and to share in the joy of Jesus as it's magnified and exploding out as more and more come to marvel at him, to rejoice in him and to praise his name for what he's doing in the world. And in our text, I'm not just saying this, Jim's not just saying this, our text bears this reality out. It's not just wishful thinking for us. Listen, the words joy or rejoicing, they're used five times in 10 verses here in Luke chapter 15 that we read that the shepherd when he finds the sheep, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes together, he calls to his friends and he says to them what? Rejoice with me. I found what was lost. Jesus says, just so I tell you, there's going to be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. And similarly with the woman, she finds the coin and she says to her friends and neighbors, rejoice with me. And just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Joy is the predominant and the ultimate theme here when it comes to the lost being found. There's joy in the rescue. Even more so than the shepherd's joy, even or the woman's joy. Here's what I want us to key in on. There's also a celebration in heaven when one lost person is found. Look with me 
at verse 7. We just read it, but to read it again. Just so I tell you, from lesser to greater, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who need no repentance. And even more clearly in verse 10, what does it say? That just so I tell you, there is joy, now listen to this, before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And now it doesn't say that there's joy from the angels, that the angels are rejoicing, but the angels have set before them a joy. What is this joy? But the joy of God himself. His own delight in saving a people for himself from every tribe, nation, and tongue that they might praise him and celebrate his glorious grace lavished upon them and his beloved son. God delights in the saving of the lost. Those he saves, as we sing, are his delight. And God, every time a sinner is saved, he throws a party in heaven. And he's inviting us, he's encouraging us, he's urging us to celebrate here on earth the way he celebrates on heaven. When just one is found and new life is to be had and forgiveness is received for each and every one of someone's sins. God is partying. God is celebrating and he doesn't want us here, his church, to miss out on that celebration. The Pharisees, and we in our hearts, maybe in our, in, in our flesh, we might not see the prospect of joy in the lost being found. But in contrast, and as we close, we look to Jesus who came to seek out and save those who were lost and bring them to God. He is the good shepherd, the chief shepherd, the shepherd <laughs> of shepherds who delights in the saving of his lost sheep. Jesus, he celebrates when they're found because he himself, he sought the lost for the joy that was set before him. And listen, he didn't just seek the lost in parables, okay? <laughs> it wasn't just a theory for Jesus to seek and save the lost. But truly, as the shepherd went on an arduous journey to rescue his sheep, Jesus, he himself, after speaking these words in Luke 15, would engage in a journey marked by even greater difficulty. Just as the shepherd bore that sheep upon his back, Jesus, he poured the cross upon his back to save us and to rescue us and to redeem us. This is not theory for him, but what he gave his life to do. And this is the heart of the gospel for us. That Jesus, he would set off on a journey like the shepherd toward Jerusalem in order to rescue and secure the rescue of every sinner that would draw near to him. A journey to Jerusalem which would not only be uncomfortable and dangerous, but excruciating and deadly. A journey to Jerusalem which would culminate in his own death upon a cross. A death he died to pay the penalty of the people he'd come to save. Receiving their punishment for sin, the sin of straying away from God and seeking to belong to the fold of this world. Bearing the wrath that they deserved for breaking God's commands and rejecting the good shepherd as their good king. Taking away the sin that separated us from the presence of a holy God. This is what Christ would do. Why did he do it? What compelled Jesus to go on this journey? What drove him to run this awful race? Well, in the words of the author to the Hebrews, Jesus ran the race for the joy that was set before him. And for this joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Church, Jesus ran the race to win the prize of a redeemed people to the glory of God, to purchase trophies of his grace that would magnify his grace now and forevermore. He was willing to go to the cross for the joy that was set before him. And this is the joy that we've been ushered into, that we get to enjoy knowing Christ our Lord, belonging to him now and forever, being part of his family, being a part of that great chorus which praises his name eternally. This is the joy of Jesus that we get to welcome our neighbors into, that there is one who would lay down his life for them. There is one who would grant them life and peace and hope and reconciliation with God. This is the joy that even now, if you've never received it before, you can you can enter into this joy of Jesus today, the one who came to die for your sins and be raised for your newness of life today, even now this afternoon. You can turn away from wandering and aiming to join the fold of the world and come to the fold of God 
through faith in Christ. Trusting that he is, in fact, a willing savior of sinners. Trusting that he has paid the price for your breaking of his law, of your wandering and straying. Trusting that he is eager to receive you into his family. Oh, if that's you, I encourage you, I urge you, I promise you, there will be joy that's found when you come into Christ and you come to know Jesus. Oh, if that's you, please talk to me after the service. Talk to John or anyone around you or any of the leaders here in this church to hear more about Jesus and how good it is to belong to him. And for the rest of us, as we close, would we who share in this mission of Jesus, would we share in the joy of Jesus? As we receive this mission, and I pray we're refreshed in it, would we consider that if he endured this agony of the cross for the joy that was set before him, will we not be encouraged, motivated to endure the lesser agonies that are before us when it comes to sharing the gospel with others. The agonies of awkwardness or embarrassment or fear or discomfort or strain or even rejection. Christ was willing to be rejected for us. We have nothing to lose. Let's go share the gospel and spread the joy of Jesus for the joy of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, thank you that you are a willing liberator and savior of sinners, that you have rescued us to be a part of your people now and forevermore, and that you've entrusted to us the privilege, Lord, not the drudgery, not the uh, apathetic duty, Lord, but you've given us the privilege of being a partner with you in the work you're doing in the world, that you have made men and women of Sovereign Grace Church of Pasadena to be yours, and you've given them your joy, and you've given them the task and the privilege of spreading that joy and of sharing that joy and of magnifying that joy as their neighbors, as those who are here in downtown come to hear and repent and be saved. One more sheep, one at a time, added to the fold of God. Oh Lord, I pray that these believers would be encouraged in mission, encouraged to spread the joy of Jesus for the joy that you promise, which awaits us. Lord, we ask that you'd be glorified in us and glorified in the mission of Sovereign Grace Church of Pasadena. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.